Welcome to the Public Health Power Hour podcast, a recording of live conversations with public health experts on the most important global health issues. I'm Steve Hamill, Vice President of Policy Advocacy and Communication at Vital Strategies. We're a global health organization and we're reimagining public health. At Vital Strategies, we believe that public health is everything that surrounds you that makes great health possible. That means clean air and water, access to medicine and quality care, healthy food and places to get exercise, and removing bias and discrimination in healthcare. Here on the Public Health Power Hour, we get together to look at how the world around us shapes our health and how we can shape the environment so that everyone everywhere has the potential for great health. And if you want to join our conversations live, please follow us on Twitter under the handle VitalStrat. All right, as people roll in, I'm going to start the Public Health Power Hour. Welcome uh, to those of you listening in and those of you joining. My name is Steve Hamill. I'm Vice President of Policy Advocacy and Communication at Vital Strategies, a global public health organization. And at Vital, we believe that public health means everything that surrounds you, that makes good health possible, that means clean air and water, access to medicine. It means healthy food and places to get exercise and supportive culture. It means removing barriers to health like bias. We've seen millions of deaths from COVID-19 over the past year and a half, economies and lives in wreck. Um, and it's shown us we have so much more to do to protect people's health. And Vital Strategies believes that we have to reimagine public health so that it's at the center of commerce, of social and civic life. In fact, just this week, we've launched a campaign um, to bring greater visibility to the public health and to show the many ways it intersects with all of our lives every day. And we want to mobilize people to champion public health. So today on the Public Health Power Hour, um, like most Thursdays, we're trying to expand our horizons, learn about different areas of public health some of us may not know about. We want to discuss what change could look like and how we can contribute to change. And uh, we've had lots of fantastic discussions on this on these Thursdays on a host of different topics like health equity, like the war on drugs, and like the rising consumption of unhealthy foods. Um, if you want to look at past episodes of the Public Health Power Hour, you can listen back on SoundCloud by visiting the soundcloud.com slash vital strategies. And this is a very community-driven space. If you have a, a topic you'd like us to cover, please drop an email at powerhouratvitalstrategies.org. But sort of let's get to the main event. We're centering today's discussion on mass incarceration and public health. We have a fantastic panel of experts who will speak to both the individual and the social costs of this enormous health problem and, and ways in which public health experts and others can intervene. We're going to introduce our panelists and warm up this discussion by asking each of them to share a news story that caught their eye this week. It could be on this topic or a different topic. Um, it's up to them. We ask them to bring anything to the table um, it, that they'd like to share. Um, and we have about six or seven minutes for this segment um, maybe I'll start with um, Dahlia Heller. Dahlia Heller is the Director of Drug Use Initiatives at Vital Strategies. Welcome, Dahlia. What article caught your eye this week? Thanks, Steve. Um, good to be here with everyone. Uh, 
Uh, so, you know, I mean, it's honestly, as you said, I'm the director of drug use initiative, so I can't help but pay attention to the news around um, our drug policies in this country and locally, and especially as we're in the midst of an enormous overdose crisis, which uh, took at least 95,000 lives last year. So what caught my eye this week then is Politico leaked uh, actually news that the de Blasio administration in New York City is considering opening overdose prevention centers before he leaves office at the end of the year. And for folks who don't know, an overdose prevention center is a space where people can safely consume drugs under the supervision of others in order to prevent um, them from dying or having any harmful uh, effects of the drug use. So the idea behind it is really harm reduction uh, related to drug use. And as we have this massive overdose crisis happening in this country, safe consumption sites or overdose prevention centers are a real opportunity to uh, save lives um, from people who are using drugs. So I was paying attention to that because it'd be interesting. I live in New York City and it will be interesting to see what happens um, with that idea being floated out there in these last weeks of his administration. Thanks so much. Thanks for sharing that. And there's so much overlap here between things we could do like your harm reduction instead of, you know, sending people to jail for, you know, health problems <laughs> instead of caring for them. Um, Lorenzo Jones is our next panelist. He's co-founder and co-executive director of the Catal Center for Equity, Health and Justice. Welcome, Lorenzo. What um, what article would you like to bring to our attention today? Morning. Um, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Um, the most it's interesting, it's a series of, it's a pattern of articles, but most recently this morning, an article came out in a local paper in Connecticut. Well, I guess in a local station in Connecticut about somebody who shot at the police in Norwich, Connecticut. And it's like a short little blurb type of, you know, like, hey, watch out, Norwich is dangerous kind of thing. But it's in a series, a pattern of articles about gun violence and gun convictions across Connecticut, where this argument where, where like the public health field is losing ground um, in the, you know, to the public safety stuff. So we're seeing like a reemergence of public safety and like tough on crime and like lock them up draconian to like Dr. Heller's point, right. A revisit to those policies, but it's being done through this guise of like gun violence and public safety. And we're seeing, right. You know, whether it's like districts in, um, New York State, or it's like across, uh, you know, everybody's places here, right? We're seeing a real, a losing of ground, a gaining of ground around public safety as something that's not a public health issue, and like we, we, I feel like we're losing that ground. Thanks so much. I, I agree with you. It's been interesting. Um, I, I live in New York City with Dahlia as well, and to watch how. Um, you know, even though crime has been a historic, you know, two decades low, we see this uptick in number of articles talking about street violence. And yes, there are issues to be resolved, but the, the public perception of what's important and how it's shaped and the coverage that you're speaking to um, shapes the solutions that we that we're really, you know, fostering here. Thank you for bringing that and localizing that issue. Um, John Adrian is our final panelist this morning. He's an advocate and an organizer, recently freed from prison after 24 years from wrongful conviction. 
Welcome, John Adrian, and thank you for spending time with us. What article caught your eye today? Well, thanks, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here. I selected an article in Lawrence Bartley's News Inside publication at themarshallproject.org, and the name of the article is Dispatch from Deadly Rikers Island. The subtitle is It Looks Like a Slave Ship in There. And the article covers various perspectives that demonstrate how unhealthy Rikers Island is. Essentially, it is a hotbed for poor health that no human should be subject to despite crime. Um, the majority of security staff have found ways to maintain their occupations without reporting to work, and they've used the union to protect them. And um, this is causing a high level of chaos and disorder, including overcrowding and unsanitary holding pens for days at a time where there are no showers, no access to showers, clogged toilets overflowing with feces and urine on the floor. I'm talking about men have to sleep on the same floor next to urine and feces. And there's extreme violence that is, that's taking place on Rikers Island at this point. And no one's safe, not the staff nor the detainees. And to me, as, as, as a person who spent 24 years incarcerated for a crime I didn't commit, I deem that to be a severe health crisis. Without adequate security staff, how can anyone be safe? And there has, there's been insurmountable rise in the amount of stabbings, slashings, abusive force incidents, um, suicides. I've read reports that are connected to this article, and it's just like, it's a travesty of justice to see this being a part of the criminal justice system. Rikers Island right now is in a serious state of emergency where the humanity of people who have not yet been convicted are being threatened daily, even, I would say, by the hour. Thank you so much for sharing. It is devastating news coming out of there, out of Rikers. And I think they, you know, the, like the word you said, humanity, like this isn't just a public health crisis. It's a human rights crisis that people can be treated like this. Um, thank you for bringing that, this, that to the discussion. I'm also going to share an article today. I'll, I'll um, share a tweet that that, that people can follow it if they'd like. It's um, from The Atlantic. It's titled How Public Health Took Part in Its Own Downfall by Ed Young, and it's been creating, getting a lot of attention. I think everyone who works in public health should read this article. It's The basic thesis is that, you know, most of the greatest gains in public health have come when health is part of social movements that put push for direct changes like in housing and sanitation, environment, wage and working conditions. Um, and, you know, improvements in these areas cause dramatic positive population health changes. But the article postulates that in the last 50 years, public health campaigners and a lot of institutions have become sort of more narrowly focused on technical and scientific data and solutions. And this resonated deeply with me for this conversation and more broadly, as we think about the solutions we need to implement to drive, you know, widespread gains in public health, you know, that that need for kind of popular or movement support to to push some of the bigger and most cross cutting changes and policies. And as a minimum, I'm going to I'm going to quote um, Dr. Mary Bassett here, who says, you know, sick leave policies, health insurance coverage and the importance of housing. These things may be outside the ability of public health to implement, but we need to raise our voices about them and be explicit. So I'm hoping, you know, I, I wanted to raise that here today because I also feel like it touches on this issue, this topic of mass incarceration, which, of course, is not exclusively a public health measure by any by any 
means. Um, and maybe to understand it um, a little more, you know, or to start with the same understanding, Dahlia, can we begin with you? Can you help us understand a bit about the breadth of mass incarceration as a public health issue, as well as some of the health harms that people and communities are exposed to because of incarceration and the, and the mass incarceration crisis? Sure. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, I think um, it's useful to start with thinking about what we mean. You know, mass incarceration has become, um, you know, which actually gratefully has become, came to sort of popular attention, public attention over the last decade. Um, there's, of course, folks who've been um, ringing this alarm for many, many more decades, and in particular, the, the communities experiencing mass incarceration specifically. But I think another way of what we mean when we say mass incarceration and really articulating that is, and Bruce Western has this great definition as a sociologist who really has done a lot of the work and to characterize um, this problem, which is a uniquely American problem. He says it is the systematic imprisonment of whole groups of the population. And I think it's important to recognize that's what we're talking about when we're talking about mass incarceration. Um, specifically, we're talking about incarceration rates for young Black men aged 20 to 40 years old without high school diplomas as a segment of the population are 50 times higher than the national average of incarceration rates. So um, we're talking about a, an extraordinary impact on especially Black and Brown communities of incarceration. And then what that, how that incarceration impacts communities is really shaped through um, the patterns of the carceral system or the criminal justice system and how it interacts with people, families, and communities um, over a life course. So when we think about mass incarceration as a public health issue, and thank you, uh, Steve, for citing that Ed Young um, article, because I really appreciate him uh, calling out public health for its uh, hyper-professionalization and um, in allegiance to medicine, which is uh, important and part of what we need to think about when we talk about health and public health, but certainly not all of. And, you know, social policies really being and, and social issues being drivers of health and health outcomes in our society. So if we think about mass incarceration, as one of those um, social issues and really a social policy that is driving health and health outcomes. We can think about that for the individual. As John Adrian uh, shared with us, the horror of what is happening right now in Rikers Island is an extreme example of what the kind of violence and trauma and infection and potential for injury um, and illness um, that people are exposed to when they're incarcerated. So the prison environment itself is a health risk and therefore, you know, is a way of thinking about health. Uh, even before prison, the experience of um, policing um, and potential injury and certainly the trauma and mental health impact of the experience of being policed is going to shape health and health outcomes. Then through prison, as somebody comes out of prison and uh, re-enters community, what is that experience of reentry? What is the um, blemish or the mark that incarceration has um, made on that person's life? And I'm not just talking about the experience, but also 
uh, what are the constraints? So are they now unable to access benefits because of the experience of incarceration or in criminal is the now being labeled as a criminal? Is it shaping where they live, what jobs they can access, what education a person can access, et cetera? All of these are going to shape health outcomes. As I mentioned earlier, um, folks without a high school diploma and black, young black men without a high, high school diploma are extraordinarily more likely to be incarcerated in this country. So there is a shaping here that happens in, in all of these steps. And then there's a family who's impacted by a person who's incarcerated. So what happens to that family um, when they lose a member of the family to the carceral system? Is that perhaps the primary breadwinner in the family or at least a contributor to the household income? That person is a father, a mother, a sister, a brother, somebody who was there and was part of a family unit and is now missing from that family unit. So what is the impact on the health of that family? And then finally, really communities, because we exist, you know, we're human, human organisms. We, we exist together in community. And when this kind of uh, policy is impacting in a very kind of focused or targeted way, particular communities, it is going to have a deleterious impact on an entire community because we're talking about access to education, employment, housing, um, and the experience of life. Thank you for, I mean, that's stark, you know, outlining the enormous social and health costs here, um, personal, family, community, and that these massive costs are disproportionately burdening black and brown communities in the short and in the long term. And, and I, I, you know, it's uniquely awful here in the U.S., right? I, I, I read recently that U.S. has 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the total incarcerated population in the U.S., more than 2.3 million people now in prisons and jails. Lorenzo, can you help us understand why are we in this era of mass incarceration? Like, what are the policies and discriminatory policies we've heard that are that have gotten us here? Yeah, so... I mean, there's an obvious. First of all, let me just say, I've done panels and I've been, I always hate talking after Dr. Heller <laughs> because she's so succinct and she lays the stuff out. And so clearly, right, I always feel like I'm mansplaining when I talk after her. <laughs> <laughs> but, so let me take a crack at it. I'm a, I'm a community organizer. I'm going to say something in a way purposefully to be, to, to agitate, but then I'll, I'll kind of walk it down. The criminal justice reform movement is the malt liquor of justice reform work in the country. It's the youngest, it's the newest, it's the least mature movement in the country. Ostensibly, everybody who ends up in the criminal justice system, for the most part, fell through the cracks of all the other systems. So, like, when you talk to people at their kitchen tables about this, they don't talk about the criminal justice reform system. We don't talk about they talk about court, talk about like for child service investigations, they talk about getting evicted. Like they talk about where all these systems like intersect. The only system, the only public system we have that when it touches the other systems, it short circuits all the other systems is the criminal justice system. And that's not the fault of poor people. 
That's not the fault of black people. It's not the fault of poor people in rural Illinois. It's the fault of the system. It's the fault of the people. So I, I live in Connecticut. I'm from the south side of Chicago. I hear, I read these articles and they talk about people in these communities like dirt. They talk about us like dirt. These suburban and rural legislators talk about us as the problems. But our legislators never defend us. So, like, if you take those two realities, if you're sitting at somebody's kitchen table talking about criminal justice reform, they don't know what the heck you're talking about. Right? So, like, what, what I'm saying is that the solution or the thing... And so I've been to Copenhagen. I've been to Budapest. I've been to Poland. I've been to France. I've been to the harm reduction sites. I've been to the access sites. I've been to the, like, all of the, the socialist system where public health is prioritized over punishment. Like all those things, and that's yep, that works, right? And that kind of works until you start talking to North Africans <laughs> in Europe, right? So, like the, the the yeah, racism. So the answer to the question is obvious: mandatory minimums, tough on crime policies, zero tolerance policies in public education, um, immigration policies, beating people on on ho- on horseback, beating people with whips in 2021. That's what that's what we're doing. So, like, when you get to somebody's kitchen table, they don't talk about the criminal justice reform movement. They talk about systemic change, building power for systemic change. And to me, if we're going to change the criminal justice reform system, like, we have to force all the other systems to stand up. When they pass new mandatory minimums for fentanyl, the public health commissioner should be like, nope, we don't support that. Because that's not a public safety issue for, that should not be going to the Judiciary Committee. It should not be at the Public Safety Committee of City Council. It should be a public health issue. So the Public Health Commissioner should say, here's what we're going to do about fentanyl. But we don't have that type of system. So the fight, the change, like, has to be local. And we got to have power from the ground up where we're not talking about the criminal justice reform system, we're talking about rebuilding the safety net that was dismantled in order to implement the drug war. That's really powerful, Lorenzo. And I I love what you said about, you know, the criminal justice system kicks in when it's other systems, including public health systems or education systems, other systems that have let people fall through the cracks. And it's the, you know, it's the system that short circuits other systems, and and it is the obligation of public health people to speak up and say there are better answers. Really powerful, um, John Adrian. I want to bring you into this um, into this conversation. You've, I mean, we've talked a little bit about you know how systems, um, you know, bring even people who do minor have health issues or do minor, um, you know, infractions into the jail. But you had a completely different experience. One that highlights that some people aren't who aren't even supposed to be in prison are in prison. You've been unjustly um, and and wrongfully convicted, spent more than twenty years in prison. Can you speak a bit to your personal experience of being wrongfully incarcerated? Sure, Steve. Thank you. Um, personally, after languishing in prison for two and a half decades for a crime I did not commit, I would describe my experience as one of America's worst nightmares. One day I was a father, a son, a person. The next I was New York's most wanted, facing the death penalty or life in prison as an alternative. And then I had to spend two years on Rikers Island, 
not necessarily under the conditions that they're going through today, but just as bad. After spending two years on Rikers Island, I learned that after being convicted at, at trial, um, I learned that I would have to spend my life in prison because the jury had acquitted me of the top count. So I was no longer facing the death penalty, which was not something that was really um, very popular in, in, in the city at the time anyway. But the truth of the matter is being sentenced to life in prison is being castrated like from society and, and, and being treated like an animal to serve the rest of your life in a cage that's smaller than most New York apartment bathrooms and having everything that you need at, that, that you can actually have, forget about what you need because you don't get everything you need, but everything that you can possibly even fathom owning would be in the, in, in the small six by nine area with no doors to protect you, just cell bars that people can actually do things to you through. And, um, the experience w was crazy for me, but in terms of the public health issue with wrongful convictions, I'd like to shine more of a light on what happens to the families of those who are wrongfully convicted. You know, I left my children at the age one, my oldest child was three, my youngest was five weeks old. And they had to go through the experience of living without a father and having to come to terms with a reality that's like, my father's in prison for a crime he didn't commit. How do I trust the system? How do I trust the cops that are supposed to protect me when they couldn't protect my father? And the trauma that's associated with that. And then the trauma that's associated with going to school and learning everything that you learn about society and seeing it from a different paradigm. And then having to also deal with my mother, right? My mother deserved to have me in her life to help her through her times as she started to age. She didn't deserve to take care of my children because I couldn't take care of them myself. And then trying to keep the family together and what she had to go through. And just to bring some reality to that situation so that people can understand where I'm going in terms of health, right? On October 2nd, 2018, which is now widely recognized as Wrongful Conviction Awareness Day. My mother experienced a heart attack after engaging in a heartfelt talk at Pace University about the impact of familial incarceration caused by wrongful convictions. So essentially wrongful convictions and my incarceration broke my mother's heart because she was diagnosed in layman terms with, it, with something called broken heart syndrome and it's cardiomyopathy. And then even beyond that, in, in a short time frame after that, I'm, I'm talking about, I can't recall if it was exactly a month or two months because my sense of time is distorted because I haven't kept time for so long. And um, she actually had a stroke based on the fact that my oldest son was incarcerated and a victim of intergenerational incarceration and talking about the trauma that he was enduring on a phone call from upstate. And it, I mean, so the devastation that happened to my mother, the devastation that has happened to my children, the trauma that we've had to endure as a family. And then you think about it, that's just me, but I'm not an anomaly, right? There are 2.3 million people incarcerated in our nation. And if only 10%, and I, I'm, I'm giving great breath there, if only 10% of those individuals are wrongfully convicted. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of people. And then 
the impact society endures collaterally based on what they're going through, what their temperament is, their stress. My son hit somebody over the head and gave him eight stitches because he couldn't deal with his anger. And the anger was based on his father's incarceration for a crime that he didn't commit. So none of this is substantiated. And we can't get none of this time back. Everything that we've lost, I'm trying to put the pieces of my life together with my family. But we lost 24 years. We can't get that back. We can't put that back together. It doesn't matter how much money you give me, what kind of opportunities you put in front of us. There's no way to heal that pain, that trauma. John, Adrian, I, that, that's just profound, especially, as you said, to think that this is happening to millions of people, you know, hundreds of thousands that may be innocent, but even the, you know, for those who may have done something to their families, the, the collateral damage, as you call it. And I just want to thank you again for your courage and sharing your story and, you know, and in a way that helps us, you know, feel it emotionally and personally. Um, I, I also want to ask you a bit about the last, you just got out in September, so you experienced COVID, you've lived through the COVID pandemic um, in, in incarcerated. Can you share a little bit about that experience, some of the concerns you have, you know, what was the pandemic experience for you? And, and did you see or experience what, you know, jails and prisons should or could be doing differently or could have done differently? Sure. Um, for me, like many others, I, I believe in society. Um, it was the scariest experience of my entire life. Um, growing up in prison, because I spent more time in prison than I spent in society. Growing up in prison, we were taught to be fearless in order to survive. But there was no way to fear an invisible war that you couldn't protect yourself against, specifically in prison. Right. Because what was happening in society, it, it was on a great scale, of course. And you would look at prison as a microcosm of that. But the the, the magnitude of it, because we're entrenched in and in, 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 in confined in such a dense and, and heavily populated area with lack of protection. It's like you can live in your apartment behind a closed door and feel safe. I live behind a cage with open space where, you know, uh, germs travel. The ventilation in my cell is connected to my neighbor and that neighbor and everybody else in that same housing block, which means that we're breathing the same air. So if you're sick, essentially you're breathing it into my cell one way or another, whether you're directly in front of me or not. Um, we weren't issued masks until September 2020 because that was deemed contraband to cover your face in prison, right? Like a mask, that, that, does, that just doesn't happen. And it took them a long time to realize that health outweighs security at that point. Of course, it's dangerous to let a bunch of men run around with masks, but it was much more dangerous not to allow them to have the mask in the first place, because it was our only defense, right? If you tried to take a handkerchief and cover your face, which they eventually allowed probably around August, you can be written up and, 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 and you can face a disciplinary infraction based on that. Um, in March of 2020, when we first basically started to really understand what we were facing, docs uh, uh, basically 
stop all human contact outside of the officers who worked at the facility. So we couldn't see the people that we love because they we may contract the virus from them and they may spread it. But we can see the officers every day who are bringing it in from outside, right? And so I understand that there's a need for officers. <laughs> of course, we just talked about that at Rikers Island. But we also understood that with them coming in, they were the only people who can spread the virus amongst us, right? So had we been incarcerated without any external uh, um, people coming from society inside, then we would have been safe in some regards. But how do we eat? How does, how does the prison function? How do we come out of ourselves if they don't come to work? So we had to face that reality. And it, it was a scary reality for us. And, and even at some junctures had caused this, this, this sense of tension. It's like, you know, now this guy comes in, does this guy have it? And, or this, does this female have it? And they were looking at us like we were the problem. But we knew that the problem came from outside, so we couldn't possibly be the problem. But um, to get much deeper, um, you know, incarcerated residents are not allowed to leave the facility. And so the only way we can contract the virus was through them. But once it came into the prison, it's airborne, and that made it inescapable because the ventilation is very poor in prison. A lot mm -hmm. of cells don't have windows. We have no way to protect ourselves from, from the spread, which was massive. And then you had a lot of people, quote unquote, saying that they were going to hold it down in their cells because they didn't trust the medical response that was available. People were dying. People were actually being dragged off of galleries. And there's only four deaths at Sing Sing. But they were being dragged off the gallery in front of 88 people on the gallery. That, that's traumatic in itself, you know. And then knowing that there's, there's no way to really protect ourselves, that caused a lot more uh, um, sensitivity to the issue, right? And to, to get a better look at what my reaction was in real time, I had participated in an MSNBC podcast called Into America. And it was ep episode seven. And it was called Into an Outbreak Behind Bars. You can actually hear the fear in my voice when I was participating in that podcast with Dan Slepian during an interview from NBC. I mean, I've never, never experienced anything like that. It was my greatest fear. And it was like, I understand everybody was going through it. I understand people in society felt, I guess, somewhat incarcerated in their own homes when restrictions were put out. But there were things that people in society had access to and could do to protect themselves that people that were incarcerated could not do as, as a matter of just rules in, in, in a facility. Um, I would say that Doc did try to, 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 to do certain things to you know, safeguard our health. And I will say that everybody, I mean, the, the greatest uh, uh, health practitioners in society we were all we all have a certain shock value. We were all blindsided by this virus. So to say what they could have done when we didn't even know what we were experiencing, it, I, I mean, I don't think it's fair. But to say what, what can be done now, I think that we have to bring um, a sense of emergency in, in the terms of awareness as to the response that happens to people incarcerated. And people need to see that the people are incarcerated are just as human as individuals in society 
despite the fact that they have made bad decisions in their lives. And to also understand that everybody that's incarcerated isn't necessarily a person who's guilty, right? Mm -hmm. Who deserves that, 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 that opportunity to be safeguarded. Um, essentially to say that it doesn't matter because they're incarcerated is, is giving us all death sentences. Um, I think that had we had access to mass a lot earlier, a lot of, a lot of people could have been saved in terms of long-term health issues that we're not even sure to this day that we have a pulse on, you know, um, but ventilation and mass was, would have been the biggest responses. I know docs did try to um, respond in a good way. The superintendent, superintendent, Michael Capra at Sing Sing was actually pulling several people from the population to meet with regularly so mm-hmm. that we can go back and send the messages back to the population. So there was communication there. Um, and, and we appreciated that. But there's like so many different things that went right. wrong that were out of everybody's hands at that point. I think they have a, a greater handle on the situation now because we know so much. So information is really power. Yeah. And and I know that I mean, one of the things that, and, and I think the data speaks to your experience that there's certainly the outbreaks in prison were, you know, uh, devastating and colossal, <laughs> the, rate, the rates there. I know that many were pushing for decarcerating um, in the face of COVID-19. Dahlia, maybe you can tell us why decarceration based on COVID was a good health policy. And did, did we have successes? Should we go further now? Can you speak to decarceration as a public health policy? Mm-hmm. I'd happily. Um, yeah, I, I thank you, John Adrian, for sharing that experience. I think there's so much horror being uh, on the outside here and being aware as you know marginally as we could be of what was happening to people inside prisons around the country. I know um, we saw many of the largest cluster outbreaks were in prisons and in many states, um, you know, up to 50% or more prisoners actually contracted COVID um, because of those conditions. And as you said, you, you don't have the right to leave. You, you can't keep yourself safe in an environment that where you have no control at all. So, and I, I just want to note the other side of that is there's the prisons and then there's jails. And we know in jails, jails are, mostly short-term stay environments. So people go in and out quite frequently. And jails were also responsible for this, that cycling between jail and community really brought um, COVID into the back and forth is a classic example of a public health issue related to incarceration is jail community cycling. There was a beautiful paper, beautiful because it was just very neatly done uh, in health affairs last year in 2020. Uh, April 2020, where they looked at the Cook County Jail and the um, relationship of COVID infection to people who are incarcerated and in jail community cycling. And they found that 15% of all cases in Chicago during the period that they looked at this, and this was soon into when we had recognized um, the epidemic in the U.S., So in April, this was published, 15% of all cases were directly connected to jail community cycling in Chicago. But even more than that, Jail community cycling predicted up to 55% of cases in Chicago. So this is not just about, you know, and especially we're talking about an airborne infectious disease. This is affecting everyone. And incarceration is a community health issue, basically, is what that shows us. So 
Decarceration. I think uh, there was a lot of drive for decarceration. COVID became a very specific issue that um, raised voices for decarceration to pull people out of the environments like John Adrian is describing, people who were in, in prison and you know long-term sentences. Um, there were pushes for releasing aging prisoners, people who were medically vulnerable, people who were close to their release date, just to get people out of that space. And I know in places like New Jersey, was there was they were successful in passing a law um, to support that decarceration. I think in the wake of uh, the experience of COVID, the the health risk environment of prison and prison as an environment that is um, not a healthy place for people um, and not our best response to um, human beings, I think also helped to shape some work. I would acknowledge um, Lorenzo's on here from Catal Center. They did incredible work in New York State and passed the Less is More bill, which essentially um, reduced the power of parole. I don't want to speak too hard on this, Lorenzo, but I believe reduced the power of parole, um, and I don't want to misspeak, to um, drive people back into imprisonment or keep people in prison for you know, parole violations or holding back parole hearings so that people couldn't get released sooner. So I think we started to recognize you know, decarceration, or, you know, there's a broader recognition and maybe finally a broader, a, a growing embrace of decarceration as a real public health um, uh, imperative. So, um, yeah, I think, I don't know, I, I could talk on and on about this, Steve, <laughs> but, you know, this, the, the things we could do instead of incarcerate people are many, and I hope we'll get to that in this conversation, but I won't jump us there yet. Yeah, Lorenzo Dalia name checked you. Do you want to speak to uh, speak to speak to that? No, if you want to know more about the Lessons More New York campaign, people should definitely reach out to, to Kenyatta, our director of organizing, um, at Kenyatta at Katalcenter.org. But in short, you know, the short take on it is, and, and a lot of folks working on this stuff for a long time in New York, right? But the idea is that like people is parole reform that would reduce the amount of time people spend on parole, reduce the amount of time people or the risk people face around violations for administrative stuff like, you know, cur violating curfew. Um, the marijuana laws that passed in New York also a major part of like this because like that, you know, this parole reform protects folks around like marijuana. And I don't want to start getting into the details of it to get long and I'm not the expert on it in, this, in our shop. So. And again, I'd be mansplaining it because that's Kenyatta's work. So if y'all want to know more about that, reach out to Kenyatta at um, katalsita.org and like Daphne. And then go to Katalsita website. we got a ton of stuff up there, fact sheets and write-ups. <laughs> Great. You know, it's, it's uh, I mean, I also wanted to, I shared above a, a link to another health affairs um, piece that was, and the title I think says it all, which is, you know, mass incarceration is, I think it's something like mass incarceration is, a health problem for everyone. And sort of, as you were talking, Dolly, I was thinking about how, you know, they point out that the, the really strong um, evidence around, you know, uh, jail and the cycling through um, and, and how that drives, you know, community health issues, even, you know, in infectious disease, but also in tuberculosis, also in other areas. So this is, this is an everybody problem uh, from a public health perspective. Um, Lorenzo, I did want to ask you a bit um, about the, the Close Rikers campaign, 
Um, yeah. That is has become a huge and political issue here in New York. Um, you know, and and you know, we John Adrian talked about it earlier, but the you know the horrific conditions there. You know, partly driven, partly endemic, partly driven by by COVID. Um, but you know, they there's been this commitment to close Rikers in 2027. You know. Can you speak to what's what what what's the alternative? You know, what might justice reinvestment that centers improvement to public health response look like? What's the future we're pushing for? I mean, the ultimate future is like no prisons. Period. Full stop. Right. Nobody should be. And I'm not saying no punishment. I'm not saying no accountability. What we've seen emerge, especially out of New York, are different ways of addressing, um, quote unquote, violent crimes or what they call capers, crimes against persons. Right. And like so you can't reform slavery. Right. And so like there's the abolitionist argument that's like you can't argue with that argument. And if you want, you can say, I don't know, maybe there's a prison or maybe there's some place to put somebody like Epstein right under right you know and that's another conversation i don't i don't know if that's a real conversation as much as it's an obvious one because it's so obvious i think in the interim you know it's like there's a difference in reform policy reform and system change and so you know our focus at katal is about system change so it's much more important to us that there are more people understand how to impact and influence the system one of the things that I'm, I'm I'm kind of bouncing around here a little bit, but one of the things that um, comes to mind about the Rikers campaign is that on its face, the argument about closing Rikers, like the most effective thing that's happened in New York around that, in my personal opinion, is that everybody agrees that Rikers got to go. Nobody is standing around here going, hey, let's just keep Rikers open, right? And I shouldn't say nobody. Obviously, there are folks saying that. But like, like the common and the political will to close Rikers Island is there. Whether or not the political power is there to close it like, remains a question. What has been accomplished with the closed Rikers work, and people know Khalif Browder's story, and people know like these conditions of confinement, and there's arguments about the borough-based facilities, now we got this situation where they're talking about moving women from jail to a prison, right? And 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 it's like what's happened is that a criminal justice reform movement has emerged in New York State in the ways that it's existed in other states, but not in New York State prior to the Rikers campaign. Mm-hmm. So the the less is more camp policy when the Rikers campaign work that people are doing. Right. Those things are direct results of a net gain, I feel like. Right. Because like like now we have a movement in New York that's got like drug policy stuff, that's got criminal justice, that's got sentencing stuff, the abolition stuff, it's got policy reform stuff, it's got activism, it's got organized, it's got mobilism, it's got litigation. Like that's happened in New York, you know, over time, but never is like this like this movement kind of effort, this organism. Well, like in a place like Connecticut or a place like Michigan, that stuff's been happening since like the late 90s, right? That stuff's been happening since 2005, right? And so New York in and of itself with the Rikers campaign has this potential and we're seeing it, right, 
to act that's actually grounded a conversation around criminal justice reform that's about people's lives and not just about the system or not just about the policies. So now we're talking about mutual aid support. We're talking about transportation, language services, all these other things. The Rikers, closing Rikers work in New York, and I'll stop here. Closing the Rikers, that work in New York has allowed New York City and New York State to close the gap in like its political relationship between New York City and Albany. You throw a little BLM on top of that. You throw a little bit of like um, Women's March on top of that. You throw um, George Floyd, Eric Garner on top of that. Right. And you find that there's some very powerful networks for system change, right, across New York State. Right. And some very old and, and like powerful ones in New York City that are now operating across New York State. And uh, that's a big just a it seems like a big gap, but it's it, it it is that big in reality. But like that wasn't happening before the Rikers campaign like that. Yeah. You know? I lo- I love that you've connected you know, well, I mean, you know, movements need symbols and Rikers and, uh, you know, like you said, the stories like John Adrian's and others, like people's stories are at the center of movements and how people understand, um, as you said, the need for system change and not just policy reform. Um, I also thought it was interesting you touched on um, abolition. You know, in fact, this week, the American Public Association voted for formal policy stance to yeah. abolish the carceral system much like yeah. you're saying, in favor of equitable systems that build um, public health address harms. Um, I'll share a tweet in, for those who want to follow that down. Um, you know, Dalia, just coming back to you, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, Lorenzo talked about it earlier, but, you know, like mass incarceration is partly this huge problem because it, it's it's capturing people who fall through other systems. You know, policing and prisons are being used to address people with mental health issues or substance abuse issues. And we know that, you know, part of this, you know, comprehensive system reform is just a much more robust uh, public system of care. And I know your work in the overdose prevention space is a huge part of that. You know, what does that system look like? And, and what would a system look like that was based in health instead? Thanks, Steve. Yeah, I think it's important just to even think about the statistics in that for a second. You know, we we know that uh, about two thirds of people incarcerated in this country at any point in time have a clinical diagnosis of a substance use disorder. So that's quite striking because it's basically saying we that is our response to um, people who are experiencing problems with drug use or alcohol use. I would also note that those folks weren't necessarily experiencing any problems at all until they were incarcerated. Um, But now, you know, what is diagnosable as a substance use disorder is probably in part because of their contact with the system in that way. So, and, you know, serious mental illness, we know 15 to 20% of people incarcerated in this country have a serious mental illness. So again, um, yeah, systems um, of uh, community psychiatry are few and far between and not operating um, as they could um, to, to really be a safety net for people. So I think in when we talk about overdose prevention, what we're really talking about is um, in the face of this uh, enormous crisis in this country, what we need to do is really invest in a supportive health-based response. And when I say health, I'm speaking to the Ed Young uh, Atlantic article that you just mentioned earlier, Steve, that 
We're really talking about public health and its social justice roots. Um, and that is the response we need to mount to drug use if we're going to make a dent in the overdose crisis, um, in, in large part because we stop criminalizing people who use drugs and actually respond to drug use as a health issue. Not that everybody needs to be in treatment, but that people deserve to be able to keep themselves safe if they're using drugs. And, you know, right now what we have is a drug supply in this country that is um, enormously uh, cut with or, you know, has become in large part fentanyl, which is a much more powerful uh, opioid than heroin. And so, you know, and a much smaller amount can have a much larger effect on people and is in large part driving the overdose crisis. So what's happened to our drug supply? How has our drug use response shaped what our drug supply looks like today? And what would it look different? How would it look different if we had a public health uh, framework for drug use? So what if we offered actually, you know, and this has been kind of, uh, you know, radical to some people, but the idea of heroin maintenance treatment or maintenance with heroin for people who have um, heroin dependence is a practical solution um, because people don't have to go to an illicit market that is now tainted by fentanyl. But how do we think more broadly about whether criminal uh, interdiction strategies have contributed to a very harmful drug market. And so if we invested, instead of investing in all of that interdiction, invest, invested in safety, um, invested in um, not just safe supply of drugs, but safe spaces, as I mentioned earlier, where people can use drugs, information that is very practical and education from an early age, um, and then truly, when we get back to that, you know, mention of mental health, not serious mental illness, but mental health issues are, uh, can be a real serious part or a real core part of when somebody develops what we call addiction. So at the, you know, source or the history of that for people is often um, people's own effort to self-medicate for what is perhaps psychological pain, emotional trauma. And how do we as a society um, have a meaningful mental health response to those issues from early on? How do we uh, deal with children in, you know, their life situations in ways that are supportive to the family that that child is a part of? And how do we create more of a, a community integrated response to what we think about as drug use issues instead of this criminalization, policing, which results in jail, incarceration and release, which becomes a blemish in your life and then having to reestablish yourself. Um, moralism, which stigmatizes people who use drugs as they access healthcare, et cetera. So really shifting away and investing in a supportive health-based response. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, you touched on something, and we have a few minutes left. You know, you talked about reintegration. Even if we could wave a magic wand and, and change the systems that are you know, unfairly targeting, um, especially black and brown people and have put 2.3 million uh, people in, you know, in prison, we'd still have to, uh, even if we could abolish those systems and, and come up with system center and help, we'd still have to help people reintegrate, um, you know, and rebuild their lives. And John Adrian, I wanted to, to invite you, you know, you're in this reintegration stage of your life. You've re you're rebuilding after decades spent unjustly in prison. What kind of support do you think 
formerly incarcerated people need in order to successfully reenter and, you know, live satisfying, successful, productive lives? Well, I would begin by saying that the whole system has to be revamped and relooked at. Um, personally, I was given three weeks. I mean, I'm a recipient of executive clemency. So my situation is a little bit different than an individual who comes home on parole. Nonetheless, I'm still under community supervision. So I was given three weeks to plan the rest of my life where somebody who goes to the parole board, their first board would get about four, four months. If they went to a second or third board because they got hit initial boards, they would be given some, a time similar to mine, two to three weeks. But housing and employment for an individual who's been incarcerated for a long time is a, is a serious problem. If an individual can get access to commit a crime in order to, you know, um, gain some type of wages to survive in society quicker than they can get a real job or housing, that's a problem, right? So an individual can probably get their hands on a gun or some drugs before they can actually get a job and a house. That is a big problem. And that is why recidivism rates are so high. In addition to that, getting proper identification. I had to pull all kinds of strings to get proper identification. I've known guys who have had to go and fake a heart attack in a hospital just so that they can get the services that they need and that they deserve, you know, in terms of getting, you know, Medicaid and, and, and Social Security and, and social services to give you some emergency money. They denied me emergency money. I came home after 24 years with nothing. If I didn't have a big support group, I would still have nothing. They didn't give me any emergency money. They didn't give me food stamps. They didn't give me any of that. They denied me. You know, on top of that, what kind of resources and opportunities are available for individuals? And the reintegration process shouldn't start the day you come home. You shouldn't be trying to figure this out when you get out here. It should start while you're still incarcerated. And that's really not happening. Mm -hmm. So there has to be a bridge, right, that closes that gap between the reality of being incarcerated and the reality of coming home. And like I said, I've been fortunate. I've been given afforded an opportunity to work as a program director for a nonprofit organization right now, but I'm under curfew. I'm a grown man who has to report home by nine o'clock every day, which inhibits my ability to be effective in my profession. On top of that, trying to get my driver's license and being able to be on the road because I live in a place that everything is a half hour away by mm -hmm. foot. You know, these are the different things that individuals have to deal with. And I consider myself fortunate. So imagine somebody who doesn't have what I have available to me. That yeah. person really is going to have a hard time. And that is the reason why recidivism rates are peaking past 60 percent in our nation. Right. Thank you. And, you know, it's, you, you kind of and I'm going to I have half a dozen more questions, but I want to respect your each of your time and, and our audience's time. Um, and you kind of brought us full circle a bit to um, to thinking about how, you know, we can't touch mass incarceration without touching the other systems that are failing. We can't help people reintegrate without um, speaking out on housing issues, on employment issues, and uh, the, the systemic barriers that keep people who've been incarcerated from, you know, becoming, you know, productive, from living healthier, more, um, you know, more fulfilled lives. Um, I want to thank each of you for helping us 
dig into this issue today and hopefully have you on uh, again on the uh, on the public health power hour to talk about this issue or related issues. Um, for those of you listening, in two weeks we have a, a different topic, um, perhaps related, but we'll be talking about activism in public health with activists Greg Gonzalez, Fatima Hassan, and Maria Surungi Sahai. Um, we'll be touching on the HIV/AIDS movement from the 80s until now, and looking at you know what can we learn from what is considered widely considered the most successful modern health public health movement and how can we turn some of those lessons to today's challenges like, um, you know, vaccine inequity and particularly um, some of those facing Africa we have because because of our, uh, our speakers, um, our speakers uh, knowledge there. Um, I want to ask each of you to follow Vital Strategies at Vital Strat and each of our speakers here on Twitter and also to to follow the Catal Center on Twitter. They're, uh, I think I see them in our audience. Um, and I'm also personally going to go to freejohnadrianvelasquez.com. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, a GoFundMe site for John Adrian, who you spoke today, who, um, you know, in honor of his story and, and in order to help empower him to, to do more talks like this, um, and I encourage you to do the same. Um, you know, one of the hard lessons of this pandemic is that public health which we've often called, you know, the quote, invisible web that protects us all can't be invisible anymore. And each of you can help by by raising the profile of public health and um, in this issue and, and elsewhere. Thanks, John Adrian. Thanks, Lorenzo. Thanks, Dahlia. For Thank your you. Day. And be well. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Public Health Power Hour. We hold these live conversations several times a month on Twitter Spaces. Follow us at Vital Strat on Twitter to join the conversation in real time. We'd love to see you there. To learn more about how Vital Strategies is reimagining public health, go to www.vitalstrategies.org. I'm Steve Hamill with Vital Strategies. Join us next time on the Public Health Power Hour.